get started. My name is Atif Kader, and this is Conversations at Michael Graves. We are recording from the iconic home of architect Michael Graves in Princeton, New Jersey. That is right next to the office of the world-renowned design firm that bears his name. In this series, we will hear the stories of American buildings from the perspective of the architects and developers who are constructing them. They will talk about the process and the product on a deeply personal level, highlighting the teamwork, integrity, ingenuity, empathy, and commitment that is necessary to build these works of art, gracing the skylines of our cities and towns. Today, our guest is Martin Ditto. Martin is the founder and CEO of Ditto Residential, an award-winning development firm based in Washington, DC. We will be talking about Oslo Admo, an eight-unit residential development in the Adams Morgan neighborhood of DC. It was completed just over a year ago and is the third in a series of Oslo-branded co-living properties in urban infill locations. He is committed to developing new ways of living and is looking to branch into a larger residential platform that we will be talking about as well. Martin, thank you so much for being here with us. Absolutely, thanks for the invitation. So let's take it way back. You were born in Jackson, went to college in Nashville, and started your career in Baltimore. Each of these are mid-sized cities with a significant architectural heritage to them. How did each of them influence you on your career path uh, that you went on today? Well, it's interesting. I, I just got chill bumps thinking about you saying they're mid-sized cities because in addition to those cities, I've lived in Valencia, Venezuela, Leeds, England, and Murcia, Spain. So of all the cities I've lived in or worked in, all of them are fairly kind of true to the heritage of that area or country, and none of them are major blockbuster cities. So I just find that interesting that, you know, it was not intentional, but it, it isn't what happened. So in uh, your first uh, real estate development project as a developer was in Baltimore. It was the Spinnaker Bay development uh, with Bazuda. What would you say you took away from that experience that uh, set the stage for you eventually starting your own firm? You know, that was just diving into like an incredibly complex, large-scale, multifamily, multi-use uh, project in a, in a major city. And so I had never done anything like it. So it's hard to say what didn't help me for that project. I mean, the mistakes that were made on the project were certainly helpful. I mean, the team, the construction team that we worked on that project was continues to be the best team that we've ever worked with. Um, you know, we dealt with, you know, two different architecture groups and how politics ends up playing into design and dealt with, you know, city relations and subsidies and TIFFs and, you know, I mean, basically dove into the deep end and, and had amazing uh, team members and mentors. But uh, it was a very complicated project and uh, it came off uh, at least on time and on budget. So that was the goal, at least at the time. And I'm guessing all your subsequent projects were all on time and on budget as well? Yeah, that was the best project. It's been downhill since there. <laughs> <laughs> so the founder of, of the firm, Tom Bazuda, said, uh, when we started the company, our primary goal was to eat and keep the lights on. Uh, and was your experience something similar when you started Ditto Residential? Um, you know, Tom was much more... Um, uh, in some ways, he knew what he wanted for the company, and I don't think I did. I was more kind of iterating towards what I saw for what I wanted for my life, right? Sure. When I first started the firm, I wanted two things. I wanted a platform uh, from which I could uh, create and manage and, and do other things. And then I wanted part of it to be scalable. 
Okay. Because, and, and I didn't really understand at the time. It's almost like I had this, this idea in my head that was, um, that was writer than I could have known about what I wanted. And so what I, what I wanted intentionally was a platform to be able to do other things. And then I wanted uh, that platform or at least parts of that platform to be scalable. And when you say scalable, is it uh, repeatable and being able to do the same thing again and again or of a larger scale or towards a larger audience? How would you describe that? I, I didn't know. Okay. Um, it, it, was, it, was, it was more the in, intuitive that I wanted that. Today, you know, it's, it's like a lot of people go back and look back on what they did and then kind of, kind of back into why they did it. Yep. I knew the word, right? I knew that concept. And then what's happened today is that kind of both. If I had to say which one's more important to me, like my ability to scale one concept or my ability to do multiple concepts, I would say for a personal enjoyment perspective, I'm more interested in, in you know, doing multiple projects or multiple kind of solutions to problems as opposed to taking one solution and, and, and you know, scaling that to a national or global audience. Okay. And your mission you describe in this way to create world-class residences with livable spaces that are so powerful that they can inspire and change the way people live their daily lives. Is that uh, in sync with what you're describing about this platform for improvement, this platform for change? Yeah, I'll tell you how I got to that statement on our website. It happened to me. You know, I had grown up in a really cool house designed by Hayestown, which is a Louisiana um, modern plantation style architect, if that's, uh, there's probably a better term for it. But, but he was very progressive in his use of, of um, materials, reuse of materials, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So that comment comes out of how I learned, we were talking earlier about how, um, you know, a, um, a, um, a country's philosophy and, and, you know, how does their language interact with, with the way that those people are. And what I learned from living in a modern home that was uh, very much minimalist from the architecture is how that could affect me and how over time, you know, I, I became the architecture as much as the, the, as the architecture became who I, you know, the design of the house became who I was. And so I, that change in me has led me to really understand how place and experience, I mean, place was kind of how I got started, like architecture layout, you know, programming, you know, I started to like layer on these different elements, I mean, like smell and, and lighting and, 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 you know, all of these different environmental factors can affect your experience. And all of that adds up to where we're headed, which is this idea of like the production of, of space or the production of experience. And so where we really are going and where we're very solidly on the way to is, is, a, is an experience design and production firm that happens to be in real estate development. Okay. Let's dive into one of those one of those places. So Oslo Admo, that's the third of your Oslo co-living buildings after Oslo Shaw and Oslo Atlas. Where did the name come from and what does it mean? So Oslo came from a uh, company-wide debate where okay. we all just threw out there, you know, whatever we could uh, onto, a, onto a whiteboard and then started debating the merits of each. I had had this dream that all the buildings we built would be named for places, which is not exactly a terribly unique idea. Like cities around the world. Right, right. And so we started, you know, Oslo was going to be the first of those. As it turns out, most city names don't make good building names. Okay. Uh, Oslo did. 
And so we, we uh, short, easy to pronounce. Yeah, it's beautiful in its own right, even as you know as it's written, and uh, doesn't have it's not totally dissimilar from Ditto as, yeah. as a as a mother or you know kind of brand to the to the whole family. And then um, just as an aside, my, my cousin lives in in Oslo, Norway, with his family, and I and I always enjoyed visiting him, and 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 definitely kind of from culturally, I love the distinction between kind of a Norwegian Northern European way of life as compared to American way of life. And there is a, an element of that design aesthetic that goes through the design of all of your buildings, right? Yeah, there is, but I would say, I would have to give more credit to architects, primarily one Vietnamese architect, Chung Cao, as one of the major influences on, on my initial kind of design. Since then, you know, now I'm, I feel like I'm influenced by a number of other people that I am very close to, but I would say it has kind of a Vietnamese uh, modernist look. Okay. Uh, and, and now I think I'm, I don't know. Now who knows, right? Now, now it's just kind of, it's what I've learned and what I like. And the direction that it heads tends to be the direction that the partners that we are cl- most closely aligned with are taking us. Okay. And uh, ADMO in the name Oslo, ADMO refers to Adams Morgan. And why did you choose to build in that neighborhood? So most of our buildings we chose because of opportunities. I mean, DC is a land constrained um, market. And so most projects come because there's an opportunity. As opposed the circumstance to, of it. Sure. Okay. I mean, you know, other markets that are more commercial, you know, like in Atlanta, Georgia, Houston, Texas, there's so many more properties that can be redeveloped because of the lack of historic preservation, but also because of zoning ability to, to make changes. That's not true in DC. So you tend to take opportunities as they come. And this was a smaller project than we had been focused on, but it was in such a cool location and we, we, we worked with a really fun design team, so it was worth doing. And then the beginning of the project was an empty parking lot, which is different than perhaps other projects which were focused on redevelopment sure. in the past. When you uh, saw the location, you saw the opportunity, was it love at first sight or was it something that had to grow on you after researching and figuring things out more? Well, I love every site where I can like do something fun. Sure. So I, I, it's hard to imagine. The, the only time that a site I don't like is if like, it's so obvious that another site is better, sure. right? And you have limited time in the day and in your life. So um, I liked it because I love Adams Morgan. I love this neighborhood. It's so close to my house. And I, and I do think that like these jewel box sites allow for greater creativity and you know, just it, it forces the architect and the design team to to really think about the experience of, of fewer people yep. versus having a more monolithic box to design. So co-living properties are often thought of as having significantly greater density. And uh, that sounds like the makings of a pretty difficult approvals process. What had you learned from your previous two projects uh, in the Oslo brand that helped color your strategy uh, in the entitlements process for this one? I mean, these buildings were by right. Okay, um, so there's nothing specific that needed to change to allow for them. Right. I mean, DC has laws that are that are that are f- somewhat flexible in terms of you, you you reach your max capacity at like six bedrooms. Sure. But um, I think that the key to the previous buildings plus this building, although that's actually not true, is a very difficult approval process. But not having to do with the co-living, it had everything to do with the idea that we were replacing a parking lot with a new building. And there was a lot of resistance in the neighborhood of any change, no matter what it was. But was that a public, pri- like a public parking lot, or who no, was actually it was parking? A there? Private parking lot. 
that was used for a local gym. Oh, so the concern is all of that would then spill over on the street. That wasn't what they stated. Their concern was they didn't want us to do a three-story building that was adjacent to two-story houses, even though on the other side of the alley, all the buildings were three stories. Okay. Yeah. So assuming that was a pretty uh, entertaining approvals process, what was the, the final constraints that you were left with that you were going to proceed forth in the design? I mean, I, I got a hand to the design team. I mean, Mark McIntyre was the architect and he would meet with the community ad nauseum yeah. until he said to them, look, I will work with you until you're happy. And um, eventually we, the approval process was just that we had done a fantastic job. They had done, the architecture team had done a fantastic job with design process. And at that point that needed to be approved. Got it. So there was no, uh, I think that sounds like a very different process than some developers might take of taking more contentious uh, type perspective. Yeah, I mean, we'll do whatever we can for it not to be contentious. Ultimately, yeah. that community did not, it was the first time that I think we'd ever not been supported, but because of the amount of uh, kind of groundwork that had gone into the approval, once we got to the, to the body that approves historic elements in DC, it was approved. So you mentioned the architect that worked on the, the project. Uh, could you talk about the, the other team members from outside your firm as well as within your firm that had uh, key roles on this project? So on this project, I mean, Oslo as a brand was very much uh, influenced by, you know, we have a fairly young team. And so yeah. they're, they're very knowledgeable, a lot of times more knowledgeable than I am at exactly what, you know, the demographic that would occupy this uh, was looking for. Like what's um, on trend in terms of layouts, styles? Yeah, what's on trend and what people are willing to accept and not accept. Okay. I mean, like, what were the trade-offs? I mean, were people more excited about a larger common area or their own bathroom? And so, like, this was the time that co-living wasn't really a term. And so we were pioneering, you know, what people would be willing to accept when they lived in what we called group group housing, okay. adult group housing, or, or you know, you would call it, you know, like... You know, shared housing? Shared or, housing, sure. Yeah. And so we were kind of exploring that on our own. And so uh, in my office, uh, Callie Brimmer is, is, is a lead on, on kind of how we think about, you know, how these um, uh, buildings will be experienced by the user. And um, it was designed, uh, developed by, uh, by Dan in our office, who's been, you know, kind of heads up our, 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 um, our um, development. So, I mean, ultimately, the, the, the effort for a building like this ends up being you know, our internal team plus our external collaborative team. And now as we move into our, our new projects, we're adding additional kind of advisors and designers so that, um, so that we are able to really hit the mark. Sure, so then in these um, more traditional projects like Oslo Adma, what is your role as the principal of the firm? Uh, do you, it sounded like you give uh, significant kind of leeway to your design team, to internal team to go as they will? I think it's, I'm learning. Okay. Yeah, I'm learning how I can step back from certain processes or areas. Yeah. But then really, like for instance, if the units are, um, are economically viable and they live well, at least according to how the market will perceive them, then where, what becomes important to me is uh, kind of the light and air and the aesthetics and the overall kind of look of the yeah. apartment. So. As I can step back because you know, our team members are, are totally competent with respect to those things, that I can focus on the things that I, that I care most about. And we're seeing that same thing start to develop. Like as we're able to create an aesthetic that we can then you know, continue to use and, and morph, 
then allows me to be more and more involved in the innovation side of what we're doing and less and less involved with the project management side. And when you say innovation, that means the, the products and the, the changes that really uh, tailor the experience for the user. Is that the idea? Yeah, I mean, like, for a long time, innovation to me was how will this building look and feel different than the last one? Sure. But then the innovation became, well, what is the product we're building? And if we could do a different product, what would that look like? Because we'd never thought, well, let's, are we only going to build apartment buildings? Right. I had just been following on this assumption that we would always build apartment buildings. Traditional rental buildings. Yeah, rental yeah. and for sale. Okay. And, I, and I'd never thought, well, should we build something different? Or should we, should we be building? Yeah. I mean, should we be a design firm? Should, I'd never like actually opened up to say, you know, if the world were my oyster, right, what would that look like? Okay. Um, in this case, the, the overall project, it's uh, eight units ranging from two to four bedrooms and a total of 24 bedrooms. And then um, if I'm correct, one of those things that came out with the, uh, the design process is each uh, bedroom having their own bathroom sure. or many of them doing that. And then washer dryers are in unit and there being a common courtyard that's often programmed with activities. Um, that structure and that uh, strategy, is that something that uh, evolved over the course of the various uh, Oslo properties, or is this something that's sort of been there since the beginning, that sort of size and scale and structure? I mean, so many of those things had morphed, right? Okay. Uh, the parody of bedrooms to bathroom had changed sure. uh, because of the kind of um, popularity of this neighborhood and our, in our, in how limited we were on square footage. We ended up not doing bedroom bathroom parody on that one property because of the popularity again. I mean, people generally want to have their own apartment if they can. That's why we see, like in the South, fewer and fewer people sharing apartments. Mm. And people really want to have their own bathroom, which is why we see um, our, our buildings that have bedroom bathroom parity being more popular than our buildings that don't. Okay. But it all comes down to supply and demand and cost. Sure. And so our uh, kind of iterations of Oslo, and now we're on our fourth Oslo, and that has, you know, all of that learning, you know, and experience has led us to our new project. Um, every single one is different. I mean, so our first Oslo was three and four bedrooms. Our second Oslo was all fives. Our third Oslo was, was two, threes, fours. And then our final is uh, over five bedrooms. And so what that allows us to do is to learn from how people interact in those spaces, how they value space, how they value private space versus public space, how they interact with planned events, how do they organically come up with events and, and how do we promote the organic production of events mm. versus the inorganic um, creation of events? And so all of that learning, the mistakes and the successes and the feedback and the years and years and years of managing these properties gives us kind of the, the data to go out and say, look, we've never built this new product before, but we have so much experience from our you know, various backgrounds and experience and, and, and um, development of the Oslo brand that we feel comfortable with that. And given that there's uh, a level of transience that's just inherent with co-living, did you decide to uh, furnish uh, the properties? And if so, like, what was the extent of the furnishing that you provide? We're still playing with that. I mean, our experience is that the shorter the term renter, the less likely they are to, to want to bring their own furniture. Okay. I mean, said differently, like the shorter the term, the cheaper it is for that person to use something that's there. I mean, to move furniture in for one day costs thousands of dollars. Sure. Because it costs thousands of dollars to move it in for a month. 
And so the longer the person is there, the more likely they are to want to personalize, you know, just like with office space. I mean, when someone like first moves into an office space, it's, it's clean and white and, and it has nothing. And then 20, 30 years later, that office tends to reflect their personality. And the same is true of, 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 of any multifamily housing and co-living is no different. And so we started off with no furniture and now we've been kind of adjusting our approach one is to make our building successful financially, but two mm. is to really think about like, do you know, if it if if by making our buildings the most financially successful, it means making them really short term rentals. You know, what does that mean? What does it mean for us? Really short term, like two months, three months, or one month, or even shorter. Well, let's let's just say this. Let's just say on a, on a scale, if the average tenure of our of our average um, resident goes down. Right as that goes down, it's it's my conjecture that 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 is a that tends to be a force for the reduction of community, versus okay. as people stay longer, that tends to be a force for the creation of community. Sure. And so, based on that concept, it has been very informative of what we want to create, and it's made us less likely to spend a lot of our time and efforts trying to create a short-term rental brand, because. Okay. If, if your goal is to create community and your goal is to create healthy environments, and we know that, 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 that by living somewhere longer, community just actually help, help, happens more organically, then we'll, we really started to focus on that and how we were rolling out and planning our new brand. So in that said, is there a hand that uh, the firm has in the uh, selection of tenants and the pairing of tenants in case someone is interested in Oslo but doesn't have five friends to, mm-hmm. uh, to rent an apartment uh, with, how, how does that process work? So, I mean, there's multiple ways to do it. I mean, generally speaking, people who are living in the buildings will, will, will find replacements for the people to move to out. To rotate out. Yeah, we'll provide, I actually don't know the exact process because it's kind of done by our, our management team. But, sure. you know, what's interesting about, about a traditional multifamily versus kind of a, a, um, a lifestyle version of multifamily um, is that in a traditional multifamily, the selection that a resident, uh, the selection process that a resident uses to choose where they're gonna live really has to do with location, price, and aesthetics. Location, and, price, and aesthetics. And, and inside the price decision is usually the size of the unit, where it is in the building, its view shed, you know, the amenities of that building plus the amenities of the unit. Uh, location is, is fairly obvious, right? And then the aesthetics is, is really interiors for the most part. And for your perspective, you're choosing, you're choosing really awesome locations and you might be trading off the amount of square footage for uh, really cutting edge or very beautiful design aesthetics. And that's, that's really the strategy that you're going for. Uh, with Oslo or in the future? With Oslo. Oh, sure. With Oslo, yeah. I mean, originally it was, what can we deliver in terms of product that is unique and that 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 piques people's interest, and that will allow them. Again, it had never, at least from our perspective, and when we built Oslo One, we didn't know that people would do it. Sure. And so we had to make this. So my thought was, well, we're going to make design changes, whether that's, you know, very uh, at the time, you know, very cool, um, almost uh, componentized bathrooms, and you know, showers with glass doors, which again, in the, in the rental world is not all that common. Sure. So it was just decisions that we thought we could do that would make it more desirable. Um, as it turns out, um, design is not a, a driving uh, decision uh, 
maker, I think, for most people who are looking at shared housing. And well, it's not dis- it wasn't disappointing to learn that, but it was mm-hmm. informative. That said, the, it sounds like the particular type of people that would be interested in living in a ditto co-living property are likely different than those that would be uh, living perhaps at competitors' uh, properties, which focus on much, uh, much more flexibility in shorter terms. Do you find that the people living at your properties are actually interested in staying longer than they would say at a traditional rental building? They might be staying two years or three years. What are you finding in terms of duration? You know, it's a good question, and 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 my whole conversation with you earlier about about duration of, of rent is, is kind of a newer thought process for us as sure. we as we kind of dug into it. Um, I think people uh, do stay longer, but more importantly, we're doing everything we can to encourage them to stay longer. So. All of our changes on the management side, on the events side, on kind of the culture side, all and all of our uh, kind of outreach and um, and kind of how we are attracting people to the brand is going to is going to begin shifting away from kind of traditional marketing um, methods and and more towards kind of this uh, announcement, you know, of who we are and who what we believe, so that people kind of self-select because of uh, their shared belief and 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 who we are. So then as a technicality in terms of how the operations of that happen, does each individual sign a lease with you or they together sign a lease for that apartment and it's re-signed as an addendum every time yeah. someone changes? It all depends on the municipality. Right. Uh, right now we only operate in D.C. and D.C. requires one lease per apartment. So it's not a rooming house then? Correct. Okay. Correct. And then from your perspective, do you see that with this approach that you're taking to provide a lot of the programming and the layouts, the amenities of co-living, but but actually with a much more substantial, um, uh, like a long-term perspective to how you operate it. Do you see this kind of coming together of the way that you um, see your, your apartment buildings and your co-living properties that they essentially seem like two options that someone can go for that are actually quite similar in many regards, right? Yeah, they are quite similar, and I think where we've come to is that instead of designing product where the wall layouts are defining of the culture, that we're really starting to look at uh, living as more of an experience. And so our goal is to really get into kind of the psychographic kind of uh, concept versus demographic concept of of what we're trying to build. And so I guess, long story, I guess my answer is that we're, we're, we're thinking about how you combine uh, kind of a, a, um, a different way of living that, that people might say, I'm willing to change the way I live so that I can have X. X, Y, or Z. And so what is that X, right? So I'm willing to give up space so that I can have this or to give up you know, more of my income so that I can have that. I mean, most of the new concepts are, I'll give up more of my income so I can have this, right? Um, but there, but like the question is, it's an agreement between the, the resident and the provider, mm. uh, you know, the resident and the community. And it's, it's like, I'm willing to pay or to give more of this resource or less of this resource in order to have more of, of that kind of uh, product or less of that product. And uh, from the revenue perspective, you're pricing uh, Oslo by bedroom. So at Oslo Admo, it's 1300 uh, per bedroom. Uh, how did you decide on that pricing? And, and talk about some of the premiums that you charge for some services or ancillary uh, things? Sure. I mean, the way we first got started was we thought that uh, we really needed to rent them. And so we, 
we just uh, we needed to get nine hundred dollars a bedroom, yep. and people were willing to rent at numbers that were higher than that. So we kind of try to figure out where the market was and just got it leased. Okay. That was the first project. Since then, we actually have a, a not so complicated but fairly in depth market analysis we do where we compare, you know, uh, multifamily apartments that ha- that receive a slight premium to multi bedroom apartments, okay. and then we have um, then we actually have a premium where we apply a premium of multi-bedroom houses uh, to, to pricing what we deliver as multi-bedroom apartments, meaning that people will pay more to live in a really nice apartment than they will a group house. Okay. And so we, kinda, we play with those numbers and come up with like premiums over or discounts to certain products. And that gives us, I think that usually gets us within 3 to 5%. And if you can hit a 3% variance on your, on your uh, income, that's pretty good. Okay, and then to to make it um, to make it clear, when you compare your Oslo properties versus your traditional rental buildings, how do you see the business model differing from the revenue, the cost, and the income perspective? Do a little, Generally little speaking, more there. Oh, uh, so is it that you are uh, making more and spending more? on your Oslo properties, or how would you compare that to like a traditional rental building? So like on Oslo, I, I mean, the goal had always been that our cost of, of total development was not um, a significant increase over our competitive set. Okay. I think we, we end up spending um, more on design um, and kind of those more intrinsic elements and, 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 and having spending the same amount on construction. Um, and then we do get higher rents. And so, I mean, there's always been this, you know, this necessity to 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 get a return on our investment, and so for spending more money on architecture and design, we did need to get a premium, and we, and we do, and that, that was that was especially apparent on our uh, largest uh, traditional apartment building, where we were getting a premium over large scale buildings with much more amenities, and that's where we did start to ask ourselves this amenity war that's going on, you know. It's it's happening and, and and fitness room, the pool, the lounge, all that stuff. Billiards, in movies, video game lounges, all of that stuff. Yeah. And you've found that for your tenants, there isn't really a desire for all of that. They actually prefer the the higher design and the the production of the of the apartment being much more the focus. I think that I think it's funny. Like you know, all things being equal, you know, if someone could have the same size building. Uh, and the same number, you know, kind of limited boutique level kind of uh, feeling of a, of a multifamily building um, and could have the amenities and could have everything. That's, that's a really, what's, what that turns into is a really fine small condo building. So yes, yeah. people would love that, right? But again, it comes back to what are they willing to trade off for? And so that's been, those trade-offs is what we've really been focused on and, and, and how we can deliver a product that, that ultimately ends up giving people a higher level of happiness for the same price that they would pay for someone else. So I want to take a moment to tell listeners about our hosts, Michael Graves Architecture and Design. This design firm has been serving clients worldwide for 55 years. From their offices in Princeton, New York City, and Washington, D.C., they provide planning, architecture, interior design, and graphic design services for many different building types. Hotels and resorts, office buildings, cultural and educational facilities, Housing, healthcare, and civic structures are all part of their repertoire. With hundreds of design awards, it's clear that they care deeply about their profession and are keen to share their ideas widely. 
So let's talk a little bit more about the, the bigger picture of co-living and where that trend is going. Um, the premise of co-living goes like this for a, a resident. You spend uh, less money exchange for less personal space. Um, you've thought quite a bit about this. In your mind, what would you summarize as the case for co-living? You know, I find more and more that the case for co-living let's say in Washington, because I'm not an expert on co-living in other cities, yep. is that you can live in a nicer place um, with some of your own private area for a lower price than traditional multifamily. So I think it's, a lot of it has come down to an economic argument for a lot of people. We've attempted very hard and are, and are spending a lot more time and focus now delivering a different experience for our residents and it's you know it's it's harder than it seems especially if you don't do your own management and so by doing our own management in the house we're able to deliver an altered you know higher level experience but i think that um if in in, in a perfect world yep. co-living is a desire to live with others so that uh deeper connections and relationships can be forged that will serve you for the rest of your life um uh, my most pessimistic view of, of, of uh, co-living is that it's a capitalist grab for more money per square foot, you know, based on people's needs of and, and supply-constrained cities. And I think that, you know, where various brands come out on that spectrum of positivity to, to, to pessimistic um, outlook uh, is, is interesting. So some of the critiques then of, of co-living um, include one from a neighbor of a co-living property that's also in DC uh, who called that particular one a glorified rooming house and way too big for the immediate context. So it sounds like the strategy that you took with Oslo is to be rather nuanced and to do a good job in blending into the community fabric. Is that is that true? Yeah, I mean, I don't know exactly which building that is, but I but I I, I know. I'll tell that, you about it later. <laughs> I know that like so much of it has to do with the experience, yeah. you know, during development, during construction, and during delivery, and how you can really create a different experience. I was talking to an investor earlier today, and they were talking about their different approach to development. Is they don't think of the development starting from a marketing perspective the day they get CFO. They think of the development as being this this interactive process with the community. And with with future residents and all the different team members, and the sure. development process is this: it's a it's a weaving of all of these different talents and materials and everything. And so I think, in a perfect world, that would be the way that everyone would do it. We certainly strive to 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 do that uh, in our projects. So the fascinating statistic: the percentage of single person households in the U.S. is now thirty percent, mm -hmm. and that's up from fifteen percent uh, just five decades ago. And at the same time, there is a decline in earning. This statistic I love, uh, over 60% of 20 and 30-somethings regularly receive money from their parents now. Mm. Uh, so you could sarcastically make the case that co-living is really obscuring the reality that an entire generation of adults can't really afford mm -hmm. to live the way that uh, previous generations did. Do you uh, take that sort of perspective or do you think that this is actually more emblematic of a way that people want to live and that's a choice that people are making. I mean, there's a lot there. I, I, I would probably say just that, you know, realistically, it's probably a more sinister kind of economic outlook mm -hmm. on, on where uh, uh, real incomes have headed in our country. 
And uh, another statistic which is interesting is that in the next 10 or 15 years, 50% of all Americans will be doing virtually gig jobs. And these could be consultants, but they're non-W2 employees. So without a need to particularly go to a particular place in downtown and come back every single day. Correct. Okay. Yeah. But also without the assuredness and the confidence that their Good job point. will be there tomorrow. And that's kind of the, 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 the interesting way of looking at it. And then add to that your statistic about the number of people that are that are receiving money from their parents. Add to that the statistic that um, that more and more people are spending well over the HUD suggested 33% of their gross income on housing, that reaching 40 and 50 and sometimes 60%. I mean, there's a housing crisis in the country. Um, you know, you can't blame a capitalist for trying to fix a housing problem by providing smaller housing for, you know, less gross money, which is the argument. The Correct. argument is that you're going to pay less gross per square foot but the argument that the, the big co-living developers and, and, and brands will make is that ultimately you're getting more return. And so it's kind of, it's, it's a message out of two sides of your mouth. One is, investors, you're getting more money, and then to the users, you're saving money. But in actuality, the users are only saving money because they're using less space. So I want to build on one of those things that you mentioned, which is that there is perhaps in the future going to be less stability or less uh, permanence to uh, work situations. Do you think then that the the Oslo brand or more broadly uh, thoughtful co-living could have a place in places other than urban infill locations, for example, in suburbs or, or beyond? Yes, and uh, co-living is, need, you know, is going to be or needs to be different than it is now. I mean, I, I think if co-living had intergenerational elements to it and co-living had, you know, uh, other kind of flexibility issues to it. For instance, like I love, I remember this, um, you know, whenever I travel in Europe, you know, the major uh, boulevards that with the major houses are mm -hmm. all split up into multiple units. They're all split up into small um, um, condos and apartments where you can live in the suburbs, but have a smaller place. And so the idea that a, that, it's not to me the idea is can co-working work outside the urban areas you know, of course it can the physically question, it's straightforward sure right and and, and, and it's some rent right somebody mm -hmm. will choose and so if you go to roanoke virginia and you design a co-living building do you get a premium per square foot over the competitive set maybe right um i think the bigger question is are the forms and products of housing that we're producing in the city, are they right? And are they being produced in the right quantities? Mm. And is the form and quantity of housing that's being produced in our exurban and suburban and, you know, kind of rural areas, is it being produced at the right numbers? Or better question about whether it's being produced, because I think it's a very American thing to do. I think the question is, what should it be? Forget about the production of housing. Let's just say like, what, you know, I love how, municipalities talk about how they're solving the affordable housing crisis by producing X number of units. But that's not really a good way of measuring success. I mean, the best way of measuring success is how many people are in need of housing, right? And how many people uh, are being provided housing. And can get it without being rent constrained. Right. Well, yeah. I mean, you can get into the details of how that's being measured. But the point is, instead of measuring it based on some measure that's totally unrelated to the denominator. Uh, yeah. If you have a, if you have a, 
you need a divisor to your numerator. So rather than talking about the, the supply, the simple production of things going off the production line, it should be the demand and was that actually met. Right. Got it. I mean, I can make the same argument about food in America. I could say that, you know, um, we're doing such a good job because we're producing more food for, for hungry people. Sure. Um, but I'm ignoring the fact that, that you know, the, the poverty rate as measured by the people who have enough to eat is going up. Well, that's not successful. We would not argue that we were successfully producing uh, affordable um, food in the United States if the poverty rate was going up, even if the production of food was going, um, sorry, going down. Versus, you understand sure, that point. Yeah. <laughs> so I think what you're getting at is that housing, whether it's co-living or traditional housing, perhaps like other social necessities, are things that are much broader than just their own production themselves. I feel this is a good segue with uh, your pivot from Oslo towards a larger wellness and community-focused brand. Could you talk about what you are taking from the Oslo properties that you've built and where you see that uh, brand continuing under under your development company? Yeah, I can start kind of with the story of, of, of how we started on this track. Sure. Um, you know, I became frustrated with the, the kind of normal process of development where I had to find a piece of land and then design it and then finish it and, and then sell it or manage it. And that just became like this, this process that like, like if I continue this rest of my life, like what level of happiness will this bring me? And then at the same time, I became interested in inter interdurational housing. Um, I was very interested in how affordable housing is, is built and distributed. Um, and by just one second, by intergenerational, you would mean uh, like grandparents, parents, kids, potentially all together? Yeah, I mean, that's like within a family. For yeah. me, it's just like housing shouldn't be all young people. Like a building should not be full of young people okay. and not old people. And a building shouldn't be of all old people and not young people. I mean, if they want that, then, I'm, then who am I to stand in their way? Sure. My point is, I think that people in society would prefer more intergenerational uh, living, yeah. eating, working, all of those things. And I feel like that's not really being provided. Because the there's very, uh, I think that's a very, very good point because there's this very nuanced sense of needs and wants that vary across generations and they mm -hmm. often are, can actually complement each other. Mm -hmm. So, okay. Well, you get back to this idea of like, are we trying to build cities for what people think that they want or are we gonna trust our planning and architects and designers mm. to actually read statistics and work with sociologists and economists and psychologists and and actually think about how mental, physical, emotional, spiritual health can be affected by uh, what we design, how we program it, what the experience is, how we mix uh, people. And again, this, this is not social engineering. It's just this idea that that right now, if you let the market do exactly what the market wants to do, it does social engineer. Mm. It's I think that would be called. Um, uh, institutional social engineering, right? Where people make decisions based on their wants, but not necessarily in their best Where the private, would know where the private system, like unfettered by any regulation, sure. ends up being more and more focused on a on a given demographic. Got it. Because it can make more money. That's the most valuable demographic and chasing them as opposed to others. Well, and this is what people suggest in the economy, okay. right? It's like, you know, Antif, I want you to, you know, the advice to you that someone might give you is like, I want you to get really, really, really good at this one thing. Okay. And then just do that over and over again. And, you know, that is good if you just want to make money 
and, uh, and, 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 and maybe bad when it comes to creating a more equitable world. Okay. And this uh, evolution for Oslo, what is the, the time scale of it? What's the physical scale? How are, you, how are you imagining that and where do you see that going forward? So um, we're, we're looking at it as a, as a next generation of Oslo. We're, we're not calling it Oslo because okay. it probably will not um, uh, be very similar in lots of ways. Like go to Helsinki or Stockholm and say. Right. <laughs> well, the, 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 uh, the, our design team is very cool and they have, uh, we have agreed that for now it will be referred to as Ditto 8.0. Okay. <laughs> so that's our, that's our code word. For and the, the 8 means? So our, our partners in this is an is a amazing design team who uh, probably most famous for being Apple's secret weapon. Okay. Uh, they were involved with the app, the design of the iPhone. Apple retail experience. Oh, the retail experience. Okay. For for many many years, and so um, I thought it was funny to call it Ditto 8.0 because you know you have different iterations of a company, and that sure. would be our you know our next iteration. So then, given that you are looking uh, towards that end, uh, what would you say is the place for Oslo Admo in the arc of your career so far? I mean, I think. In some ways, it's it's a pinnacle of like these jewel box properties that I had been headed towards doing, and um, and I'm I'm very proud of how it turned out and how eventually the community rallied around its design and how it's been received by residents, you know. And, and I, I did a partnership with a with an artist and architect named Hiroshi Jacobs to design a custom um, a handrail system that is I mean it, it's absolutely gorgeous. Pretty cool. It's totally gorgeous, yeah, and and he's um, and that just that partnership to me was a lot of fun, and so it, to me it's a it's a pinnacle for some things that we were doing, and it's it's a transition point for other things. Okay, uh, we have time for a few questions. It's very interesting to talk to hear you talk about traditional housing and then lifestyle housing, and also talk about brand. So I'm interested to know about the brand extension and brand extensions and what you mean by brand and how the branding and the lifestyle start to influence uh, how you design things, how you market them, and how sure. you perceive them. So if I, if I think about brand and how, how it's evolved in my life from how I understood it, I mean, I assume I knew the word brand when I graduated from college. I mean, we had brands, you know, Procter & Gamble had all these brands. Uh, but I didn't think of, of a company as a brand. And so I think it, Bazzuto was a great example to me of, some, of, a, of a man, Tom Bazzuto, of a man who really believes in brand way before everyone understood that. Um, so that was a good introduction to you know, how, that might, you know, how that might be helpful. I think that um, I then learned that, that if I made my product a little bit better than my competitive set, that would bolster my brand. And then after I... Uh, started to learn more and more about design, I realized, well, if I, if I really work with fantastic architects, then I can create a look and an idea and a feeling, an emotional kind of take on my brand that created even more value. And, you know, then, we, then I started to, you know, wanted to learn about light and, uh, and lighting and, uh, and, and furniture and art. And, and so I've just started layering on all these other elements. And ultimately, all of those elements come together to create experience. And, and what's so fun about a hotel, for instance, or a resort, is that you know, beyond, you know, in, a, in an apartment building, you build the walls, and then you, you kind of exit. And, you, and then people bring in their own furniture, and design, and music, and smells, and food. 
And so, you know, where we're headed is, 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 is that we are bringing more and more experts into our company and into our product and into our collaboration for Ditto 8.0 so that the ultimate experience is, is literally for a certain subset of the population, unbeatable, un, 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 uh, unmeetable in any other of our competitive set. And that's what brand means to me is brand is that I remember being there, living there, experiencing it, whatever, based on what they created. And so it's, 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 the, it's the essence of what someone walks away with. So you also, um, Atif mentioned in the beginning that you had been living in a small city such as Nashville. Mm -hmm. And if you go back to Nashville today, I'm wondering how the, the sense of what is happening in the Nashville scene and how it's developing today um, implies a sense of brand because of the uniqueness of that place. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. Nashville definitely has a very strong brand uh, that is bigger than it just being a southern city or a music city or a, you know a, now it's a healthcare city and a university city and a state capital and all of the other things. You know, I think for Nashville, it has a lot of different things going for it, which add to that brand. And so maybe that's a great example of you know Washington D.C. Um, has amazing um, civic design and has a power from the seat of government and then has slowly added more to things to its repertoire, which Nashville had gotten from an artistic perspective and a government perspective and those for a long time. Um, so I think that all of those things of Nashville weigh into it. I thought where you were going with that uh, is, is kind of like, how has the brand of Nashville changed? And that's interesting as more commerce comes to Nashville and uh, more, more people who are looking for more places to live, it starts to change the nature of Nashville. Um, and for some people that's good and for some people that's not good. And that's really where we're starting to investigate is how can we make sure that when we go somewhere, we're not like, I mean, you know, we, when we renovate, we take a parking lot, we build into a building. Sure. It's hard to argue that that's not better for everyone. But if you take an existing uh, plot of land that has some residents on it and rebuild it, well, now we're going to start to measure. Now there is actually some winners and some losers potentially, and so that piece, that re that social uh, responsibility piece, and, and kind of how how what we're doing affects the greater environment is becoming, you know, it's always been interesting, but but that was like more of a more of a uh, of a intellectual kind of exercise. Now it's central to how we think about what we do and who we partner with. Cool. Well, thanks so much for joining us today, Martin. Of course. Uh, next time, I'll be interviewing Karen Stoneley, the founding partner at Span Architecture. Her design firm focuses on innovative residential and commercial properties across the Northeast. My name is Atif Kader, and this has been Conversations with Michael Graves. Mm -hmm.